Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Edge. Today, we have Tiago Rosado on a call with us. Very happy to speak to Tiago. I've met Tiago before virtually, um, but John hasn't. Uh, I did an event recently, a Zero Trust event with him. It was a great conversation. It prompted me really to have him on as a guest. I thought there was so much we could talk about. Um, but Tiago, if you can just kind of kick off and kind of give us a bit of background to our listeners about kind of where you started and what your journey was, and then we'll kind of get into a bit more meaty questions. Oh, for sure. Uh, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here again and speaking with you, Jay, and um, to meet John, in, uh, even if it's virtually. Journey in InfoSec, uh, well, that started quite a few years ago, uh, almost in a lot of the lifetime. Back in the day, I was working um, within the IT um, spectrum and the, the place where I was working, we got breached uh, and it was hacked and I took on myself um, to try to understand what happened and who was behind it. Of course, I could not find uh, the person behind it because it was behind a few layers um, back then, but that was pretty much um, the beginning of it. Then a, a few years later, uh, SensePost, uh, a penetration testing company now part of Orange Cybersecurity, uh, kindly invited me to join them uh, in UK uh, roughly 10 years ago. And from that was a crescendo. Um, I went to work with GIFGAF, I went to work with a, another penetration testing company, I went to work with Interlinks, and more recently I'm now a CISO at A-Site. We do software for the construction uh, area, and I take care of all the security and data privacy across. But in a very brief and resumed way, this was my experience from IT manager all the way to the CISO throughout uh, these past 25 years. So it's it's not uncommon for a CISO of today to kind of come out of networking or come out of IT or come out of infrastructure, because I think as security did, it kind of evolved over time. Um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was just called InfoSec, as you related to. Now it's security, and now the, the role of the CISO is becoming more predominant in the industry. We've got now greater security teams. We've got the CISO actually having budget, which is a relatively new thing. I actually think the direction we are traveling is, is a pretty good direction because I think with ransomware and cyber attacks and everything that's going on, security is a lot more prevalent of a requirement within a business. But we also see that the CISO still, in some cases, reports into IT, um, or some cases reports into the CIO still, or reports into finance, or doesn't really have a seat at the table. I'd love to know what your opinion is on that. I mean, I, I truly believe it's really difficult for a CISO who reports into IT and has no budget and has no resources to get the job done. I think there are cases where that might work if the CISO and the CIO have very good relationships, but it's a little bit like marking your own homework. So I'd really be interested in, in your thoughts on that. Where, where should the CISO report? And really, further than that, what should the role of the CISO be? Because it's such an encompassing role. It could include physical security, IT security, all kinds of stuff. And I know there's no magic wand, and I'm putting you on the spot, but I'd just be interested in what your thoughts are. Fair enough. Um, luckily enough, I had a broad spectrum um, where the CISO or the person in charge of security uh, would report to. I've had uh, positions uh, that I would report to the CEO, which uh, was a uh, very 
uh, interesting. I had positions where I would report to the CTO and I would never be in a position before that I would report to an NL, to report to the CFO also. So that, that, that was my personal experience. So CEO, CFO or CTO uh, would be um, all the things that I've experienced so far. Now, where should the CISO report? I would expect the CISO to report to the board. I think will be very um, useful for the board to have a CISO on the table. Um, as we've seen, for example, from the Security Exchange Commission, pressing forward to have CISOs or at least uh, uh, cybersecurity educated boards is becoming more prevalent and being very uh, aggressive. Um, I think we have passed the time where companies would be complacent enough not to have uh, at least a really solid understanding of cybersecurity. What should the CISO look like? That's interesting. I have met quite a few CISOs throughout my years. Uh, some of them have, like myself, a more technical background. Uh, some have a legal background. Uh, some have uh, more financial or MBA-related backgrounds. Um, it is a mix out there. So there is not one, one size fits all. Uh, I have seen people with very different experiences. But I think we all agree that the CISO should sit um, or at least report very strongly and have a really good communication line to the board. Uh, otherwise, if the board does not have the expertise, um, they have a legal counsel. Uh, they have a CFO that will bring <laughs> to the table what will be um, the most pressing issues regarding the finance of the company. My question would be, so why don't you bring a CISO uh, to the board and to have those conversations? Because security is not anymore, I would, or at least I would like to think it is not anymore, the people that always say no to everything. If anything, um, nowadays a CISO needs to be a business enabler, right? We, we cannot just say no uh, to everything and push back on everything. Uh, I would say that we should say yes, but um, to any projects, uh, things need to be done, but should be done properly, um, thought well through before um, having a threat modeling in place, for example, you know, the kind of things that would allow to prevent or minimize any risks um, across any part of the business. So from compliance to data privacy to information security, those will be the thing, or even legal, uh, not to replace, of course, legal counsel, but have a very solid understanding, at least where the laws in terms of cybersecurity or data privacy should sit. You mentioned something there, um, SEC. Um, New York DFS just came out with a, a revised uh, language to their Second Amendment, um, which essentially both of these both of these uh, organizations are looking to elevate security, cybersecurity, onto the board. Um, the question I have for you is, is what is the process you go through to educate a board regarding cybersecurity in the right way? Uh, so instead of you know showing a bunch of statistics and then asking for a lot of money, how do you really get them to understand uh, the threat landscape? Uh, what are the investments that are needed to be made? Uh, and how do we better secure the business going forward now that it's it's much more digital? I think most of the boards are very comfortable when they speak about risks. They are more than used to talk about financial risks, for example. So you need to establish the parallels between that and the cybersecurity information security world, right? So if you're saying, okay, things are changing out there, the competition, the competition is getting tougher, uh, at the same time, they will be very easy to resonate when you say, well, 
um, the threat landscape is this one. We are facing uh, an escalation of cyber warfare from both Russia and China. Um, if you're sitting in a critical infrastructure, for example, in the US, you are expected uh, to become a massive target and you can expect either ransomware attack or a combination of a ransomware attack and uh, a data breach or access to uh, your critical infrastructure out there. Just to give an example, let's talk about critical infrastructures because I think that's been uh, in the news recently about the targets and what, what is happening with a few uh, electricity and water companies in the US. So saying this, I think it would be very easy to establish the parallel with the return of investment in security. I think all boards will ask, and even myself would ask is, okay, you know how much it will cost us if we are breached. This is what will cost us uh, in terms of either money or uh, technology to mitigate or even training. And we can go on the fundamentals versus uh, fancy toys in a bit. Um, but I think it will be easy to resonate between the return on investment in security when you know, or at least have a, a really solid understanding how much it will impact us if we are attacked or have a data breach, and at the same time, what will be the cost of mitigating those risks. So I think at the end of the day, that will be, or should be sufficient uh, to give a board a really solid understanding uh, what are the risks that they are taking. Do you think with the rise of more um regulation uh, and, and probably follow-on legislation. I mean, uh, Ron Wyden, who's a well-known senator from Oregon, uh, he has a very technical background, at least on his staff, um, and he called out Microsoft pretty prominently this week, or maybe it was last week. Um, do you think that there's going to be more regulation coming into the industry um, and uh, putting more pressure on CISOs in to to really kind of uh, shore up some of the, the challenges that we've seen over the past uh, five years? Oh, definitely. So just to give you all a full a bit of context, uh, not, not that long ago, actually a few months ago, I wrote an article on LinkedIn exactly about that. Oh, the pressures across the globe, not just in the US, but for example, in France, uh, where you cannot activate your cyber insurance without reporting uh, to the French authorities that you had a data breach. All of these together, I can only expect um, the laws to be um, more and tougher across. Uh, again, regulation only comes into place when companies are not doing things properly, right? We all know this, uh, regardless if it's insurance or if it's um, cryptocurrencies or cybersecurity, data privacy, regulation only comes in place because the, the best behaviors are not there. So to your point, John, definitely, I'm expecting things to escalate, uh, to escalate faster and being far more aggressive in terms of agenda. Look at what the CIS uh, is been doing and what are they pushing in terms of agenda across all the US government agencies, uh, what UK uh, is doing in terms of uh, cyber essentials and the National Cybersecurity uh, Center is doing in terms of uh, cyber defense across, it's not just uh, critical infrastructure, but for the banking industry also. So all of this, yes, definitely, it is expected to raise uh, in even in terms of data privacy, I'm expecting um, the fines to be bigger, more often. Um, let, look at the French, you know, I always look at the French legal and uh, the German counterpart, because they're the ones that have pushing the highest fines and also having a much more, let's say, um, 
aggressive posture uh, in terms of going after people or companies that are not willing um, to proceed uh, carefully with the other people's data. So I read statistics all the time about the fact that it takes a CISO about a year or 18 months to get into a role to understand the business, to kind of start making inroads into making changes. We'll talk a little bit about getting the fundamentals right, but I also read statistics that the role of a CISO or, or the tenure of a CISO is similar, like 18 months to two years. So the maths in my mind doesn't add up. It's like you come into a role, it takes you 6, 12, 18 months to understand the business, to understand really what the, the fundamentals are you need to change and put it in, in at least the baseline. The article that we'll talk about in a minute that was in, in VentureBeat talks about gaining the trust of the board before you can actually make any change, and that's going to take time. But then you're gone in 18 to 24 months. Now, I'm not saying every CISO does that, or I'm not saying it is hard for every CISO to make the changes. But what concerns me is there's more and more pressure being put on the people in those roles. There's more and more legislation we've just talked about. There are fines. There's all these responsibilities that the CISO is going to have. How do we keep people in those roles? What, what, what? Firstly, why do you think they're leaving so quickly? And secondly, how do we undo that? Because I, I think it's a, it is a difficult role. It, it's, it's almost like keeping your finger in the dam to stop the water coming out. At some point, you're going to fail, unfortunately. I don't mean fail, but at some point, it's going to become too much. So you're not really in a job that, I don't know, it, it, it comes with this massive success pat on the back. At some point, you're always going to think we might get compromised here. What do we do about that? I would say that we already compromised. We're just going to discover if when we have been. Yeah. That will my take usually. I don't disagree with that either. I mean, it's a case of, yeah. I mean, I, I remember being asked several times in my previous role, are we still okay? Are we still okay? And I'm like, I don't know if we're okay. I mean, we haven't found the compromise yet is the answer. But, exactly. but I mean, what what do we do to kind of retain those CISOs to, 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 to enable them to do the jobs, to give them the platform to be more successful? So from personal experience and talking with other colleagues in the industry, there's a couple of things that usually drives people out of the companies where they are. Either one, they do not feel that uh, the people that are managing them or um, depending who they report to are giving the necessary support. And I would say that is the most prevalent uh, case uh, where uh, people that are in the CISOs, head of, director of information security, when they talk, um, security is always an afterthought uh, and again uh, as you said and very well jay it is a very demanding job i would say it is au pair with a, a cfo for example uh, if the cfo fails into put in the predictions or even uh, a chief revenue officer if if they do not uh, obtain the targets in terms of sales it is extremely damaging to the company the role of a CISO is not easy right because you need only to fail once you can do everything right you fail once, and that, that can be extremely damaging for, for the company. Not that you fail, but the company as a whole fail. And that, that's something that we need to go into also in terms of the culture. But I would say from a personal experience and from talking with other colleagues uh, is always um, something around these lines. Um, either they don't think that people are listening 
uh, sometimes even um, people are a bit, uh, you always come with that doom and gloom, everything is going to be hacked and we are going to be breached and never happened because so far we always did it this way, nothing happened, right? And I usually compare it with um, going out on a Friday night and having one too many. You can spend months in a row going back home safely, nothing happens, but the day that you hit another car and you hit it badly and people are injured is the day that you wake up. And that's drunk driving 101. Cybersecurity is exactly the same thing. You are drunk on success. You keep operating the same way and expect nothing to happen until one day it does. And when it does, it usually tends to be brutal and goes badly and uh, the company gets hurt. Yeah, I mean, you raised some some points that I want to dig a little bit deeper on. You talked about getting the fundamentals or kind of the basics right. And I, I for me, I think that's quite critical and you also talked about culture so for me getting the kind of basics right is getting the culture right to, to me they're one in the same thing and i mean we talk a lot on this podcast and we talk about technology and we love technology and, and we've all come from technology backgrounds and it's it's not uncommon for a security team to change within a business or an, even an it team to change and suddenly they just want to buy new technology for me and maybe John agrees or disagrees, use the tool you've already got to take a little bit of the journey and then evaluate, do I have the right tools in place? Don't just go out and refresh your whole environment with a whole bunch of brand new tools. For me, getting the basics right is doing that audit, looking and, and setting the bar. Where where are we and where do we need to be? What What is that gap? And then how do we close that gap? Because you may be able to close the gap with the tools you already have before you go and acquire new tools. I can see you smiling. What What are your thoughts on that? So first, I like to say that basics and fundamentals are very different things. If they were the fundamentals, if the fundamentals were basic, none of us would see the amount of data breaches out there. And let, let's start with that one. Uh, fundamentals are not as basic. Sometimes they're not easy, um, but they are fundamentals for a reason. When we talk about technology, um, the biggest and enemy, and at the same time, the best ally that we have is people, as we all know. Uh, the problems in cybersecurity are created by people. Uh, it's not a technological problem. It's a people's problem, right? Or a people's issue, not problem. It's not a problem. So the first thing that we should do is act on the people and changing the culture. If you do not change the culture, there is no matter uh, of technology that you can put in place. I usually say that you only put in place the technology to compensate for the changes in culture that you cannot make. And if you think about it, uh, you see why, why I'm saying this. It, it's not easy. Why you put uh, a password manager in place because people could not care less about reusing their password, right? So you need to make a very pragmatic decision. Do I keep people reusing their personal passwords in a production environment or I bring in a password manager to try to mitigate that? Yeah. So in a very simplistic approach, I think that would be a really good example. But there are others. You put the DLP in place because if people do not behave properly and they will connect to their personal cloud and take out the company data, let's say, for example, a salesperson that will leave in a few months or is preparing to put their notice 
And they will pick the database of all the clients. That's not unusual. We all know this. It's, it's people 101. So I think, again, it is um, addressing the people. We, we know that cartoon that we have in one side, uh, firewalls, DLP, whatnot. And the other side, we have Dave with the T-shirt saying human error. Uh, that gives you exactly the right perspective around that. So people's first. You're saying that CISOs take up to 16 to 18 months uh, to start making changes. I would say that you need to start making changes immediately. As soon as you learn and you start understanding the culture and how people operate, you start, at least I, I, I do. Uh, that's, that's usually my game. The first three months is for me to understand exactly how people operate inside of a company and trying to understand what would be the, the biggest risks. And if necessary, of course, uh, put in technology. But first and foremost, I rather act at the human level. Because in the end of the day, the people that create the problems and also can be the ones that alert you to issues that you're not aware. So if you don't build a, a trust relation with your users, if you're being seen always as the stigma, and I think that is a stigma here, that the security people are always the blockers uh, of business, right? Because we all, we all experience uh, salespeople coming to us saying, oh, um, is security is blocking this, or developing saying, oh, we're blocking that because of security. If you work with them proactively, they'll become your best friends and your best supporters. But if you are reactive only, yeah, there is nothing you can do about that. And you'll still be perceived as the, the blocker, the difficult, and all the nice little words that we all come across throughout our careers uh, when it comes to security people. So what kind of tools and mechanisms do you think a CISO could use to change the culture? Are we talking just purely about training? What is it we're talking about? I think psychology and trust. If you cannot read your audience, you have a problem, right? Uh, and if you do not fully understand where your users coming from, that you are not a superman, that you are not a police officer, and you are there to help them and support them, I think that you're going in with the wrong attitude. That's simple. If you're going in as a CISO, head of, or anyone related with security functions, that you are the only defender of the kingdom, you are wrong. Every single one of these people, they want the best for the company and the best for themselves. They want to make the most money. They want to thrive. They want to get the biggest bonus. They want all that. And yes, they also will overcome certain uh, obstacles. For example, poorly written policies that are a burden instead of being a facilitator uh, are very common. People bypassing policies and procedures to go to the objectives that they want to reach. So. I would say work with them, trying to understand where they're coming from is always the best that you can do. I'd like to ask you a little bit about priorities of the CISO and the conversation we've had maybe has changed the question I was going to ask because I think it maybe depends on the business you're entering. So I was going to say, what do you think the top three priorities of a CISO should be in the next five years? But I guess if you're going into a company that has got no security, it might be very different than if you're entering a company that's pretty well-rounded on that front. Um, so I'll set the scene a little bit. Let's assume you're walking into a, 
manufacturing company and they've invested a little bit in cybersecurity, but not massively. They're starting to migrate to the cloud. They've not really evaluated what that means because they've just done a lift and shift. Does that change what their priorities should be? Or is it easy to say, deal with things like ransomware and phishing and train staff? Or is it, or is the question just a pointless question to ask? I don't think it's a pointless question, but uh, every case is a case, depending on their journey. Um, migrating to cloud. So the other day I was looking at um, someone advocating that the cloud is not for everyone, and they're absolutely right. The cost sometimes of migrating to the cloud, especially when you don't have people that are highly trained in dealing with the cloud environment, can be a bigger security issue, even than having an on-prem solution. So each to their own, and I think there will be informed decisions to be made around that. Now, regardless of the strategy behind it, uh, just because you are in the cloud, again, depends on your operate. Are you using Kubernetes? Are you using Docker images? Are you just using the old traditional virtual machines that you used to use on your ESI or something like that? Um, comes to ransomware, if you're still using the same infrastructure, now it's just in a cloud instead of in the, in the data center, nothing changed. Your risks are still the same or even worse because now you cannot just go in there and, and change things, right? You will need to recreate, and if you're not very agile in creating on an automated form those virtual machines, that you might run into a problem. If your backups that were for the on-prem scenarios are not good enough for your cloud virtual machines, you still have issues. So um, I would say it is a very pertinent question, but it is so unique to, um, to any company, even if it's a manufacturing company, what exactly are they migrating into the cloud? Are they migrating just the accounting system? Uh, would it not be better just to hire a SaaS uh, solution to do that? Uh, give, give me a little bit more, Jay. So we, we're trying to get this discussion <laughs> because I can, I've, I've come from different backgrounds and different companies. I always try to work in verticals or in companies that have never worked before to get as broader spectrum as possible. Um, I don't like to work just in one specific area. It becomes, after a while, becomes pretty much the same again and again. I think, to um, be honest, you've you've answered the question. I mean, and, and we read all these statistics. We read the top three priorities or the top five priorities of every CISO is this or is that. Now, the top threat types may be different. It may be easier to list phishing and ransomware, et cetera, as the top threat types. But the priorities, in my opinion, of the CISO is going to really depend on how big an armory they already have to protect against those threat types. If you already feel you're relatively comfortable from a ransomware point of view, then maybe your priority is something else. And what my concern is and what I've seen and heard is CISOs are kind of, some of them are going from job to job using the same process to implement the same technologies in whatever business they land in. And maybe that's why they're only there 18 to 24 months. But for me, there's more to it. And I mean, when I used to join a new company, it would take me time to understand not just the technology, but I'd need to understand the people, the culture, 
why had they done certain things in a certain way? What was, were they open to change? What was the resistance going to be if I needed to change certain things? Had change been tried before? And if it had been tried before and it didn't work, why did it fail? So there's all these kind of questions. But one thing that is is definitely on the tip of everyone's tongue is this thing called zero trust, right? And we, we spoke about it before. So I'd like to get your insights into to, into some of it. So we hear about it all the time. I I, I think it's a good good uh, architecture framework. I, I kind of stand behind it, and I know John does. But it's being driven a lot kind of in the US, or at least that's the way it seems. Are you hearing about it? And are your peers hearing about it? And if they're hearing about it, what are the feelings and, and are they putting it in their strategies outside of the US? Where I get most of zero trust definitely is from the US, but also I reckon and the US is, let's say, where technology is very or most prevalently still being, let's say, more on-prem than in Europe. Um, more, more and more European companies, I would say, are moving for, towards the SaaS and therefore automatically um, within a zero trust, well, depending how they are implementing their SaaS strategy and the SSO and the authentication process in, in there. But I would say when you have just the SaaS um, uh, systems and you don't have anything on-prem, you would be pretty much almost within a zero trust. Not, not really, but almost in a zero trust environment um, with a few exceptions here and there. Um, but I think that will be the, the main reason. Other companies, um, let's say, or other organizations like um, mostly government organizations are still very uh, on-prem. But zero trust does not come as often as I can see from the, the US side. No, definitely not. No, I, see, I think I agree with that. I mean, I've been talking at events recently. I've been out doing roundtables and talking to C-cells. And I was actually quite shocked at the number of people that are like, well, we don't have anything on-prem anymore. We're all in 365. We're all in SaaS. What what? Like, I don't have any east-west traffic because I don't really have anything that goes east-west. Um, but, John, anything you want to throw in on like that conversation? No, I think it really, again, it depends on the industry. Um, how old is the company? Uh, where are they? What have they done uh, regarding technical debt? Because I think that's that's really the crux of it. If, if you're a, a new company and, you know, you've had the opportunity to build on a, on a SaaS model, then your technical debt is is rather low and, and your on-prem is is rather light. So, again, it, it, it depends. And uh, I don't know if a lot of the companies within Europe and Asia are just relatively new. Um, you know, we, we talked, a, there was a mention there of government, government being strongly on-prem. Um, but it, again, it, I think it depends on on the situation and, and where you are in your maturity process in terms of IT. Yeah, I mean, I came from a manufacturing company and most of my background is in manufacturing. And zero trust for them, I think, is important because there's still legacy hardware, legacy software, and I remember walking around factories and seeing DOS machines, like pre-Windows machines, still on the network. That the person who kind of did the coding 
left 20 or 30 years ago and it may only be used once a year but it's critical because that one customer needs it or we also did some military based stuff and some healthcare based stuff so it was quite critical um, but i think if you are greenfield it's less so important um but i want to talk a little bit about um an article that i read recently and the article title was how CISOs can engage the C-suite and board to manage and address cyber risk. And we've talked about some of it. So I'll, I'll briefly run through some of what it says. And it says, know when to say yes. I think you covered that in the beginning. You talked about we shouldn't always be seen as the people that say no. So I think that's quite critical. It said aligning cyber risk to business goals. Now, what do you think of that one? I mean, I, I think... Cyber is all about business goals, but how do you do that? How do you align cyber risk to business goals? What does that even mean, that statement? I think it would be very simple. So, for example, things like data privacy and security by design by default. I'm going to give you a few examples. I worked at Curve, uh, a credit card finance. Previously, I worked also uh, with Gravity and API management and security systems. One of the simplest things that you can do if you are in these two spaces or any other space is look at your business objectives and bring these in. A simple way, for example, for Gravity was um, using that as the default configurations on a system. What better way do you have for a company that provides software um, to manage whatever they're managing out there um, if not the highest standards of security and data privacy combine at one, right? That will be a very simple example as a software house, how you would do it. The same, for example, if you are a manufacturing company, you are not expecting uh, the regulators to come to your door. Let's say that you manufacture bicycles, just a simple example. Are you going to put in brakes that by default when you get out of the factory, the brakes are not working? No. When you get a new bike, what is your expectation? Then you sit on the bike, the bike is comfortable, the tires are properly up and running, and you can just pick it up. And the first time you try to brake, you are not hitting the wall. The brakes are working, right? Cybersecurity, exactly the same. So regardless of what your company does as a business, you need to embed security and, in my opinion, data privacy on it by design and by default from day one. And that will become a differential factor. Quite a few years ago, I was still with GIFGAF. I wrote an article exactly about that. And now in a few years, um, having suppliers uh, or business partners that do not uh, take data privacy um, with the necessary care and respect would be excluded. How many suppliers that they're not having the, the, the proper levels of security and data privacy have you excluded from your business uh, exactly because of that? On top of my mind, I remember quite a few that I said, no, I am sorry, you are too much of a business risk for us to have you as a supplier. It is impossible for us to continue to work with you if you keep stuck to the old ways and you're not willing to become better. So these are the two examples that I would put from the product service perspective and from the risk and, um, of suppliers and where you, embedding cybersecurity is the, the easiest and the best thing to do for the company. I think you raise a really good point with the supplier and we could do a whole podcast on supply chain risks. All four. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, because, I mean, again, coming from manufacturing, we were a supplier for people up the chain and we were supplied by people down the chain. And a lot of those people were connected to our network. Exactly. Um, and, and that scared me. I mean, I always say, I always give this analogy of, I live in a house, I lock my doors, I lock my windows, and I do everything. But your suppliers, it's almost like you've got a tunnel underneath the houses down the street. Somebody well, breaks in further down and uses the tunnel to get into my house. I'm in problems, right? So I give you a very good example. APIs. You are consuming APIs and data from APIs and supplying others APIs at a scale and a level never seen before. How many of you are filtering the information that are coming from those APIs into your systems? Injecting malicious content in, in the APIs is one of the biggest threats that we have across. Yeah, I mean, that... very, very, very few people out there are paying attention to this. They're consuming APIs and passing information, and they will become the pipeline for an attack in a supply chain attack, as we've seen before. For example, in the defense industry, when why would I go for Lockheed Martin uh, trying to get uh, the plans for the F-35? I just attack the little supplier that provides the bolts on the wings or something like that because they'll have access to it anyway. So there you go. I mean, we, we talk about this all the time, that kind of the big companies have legislation against them. They have more money to be able to invest. They generally have a, a more wider resource network where they can pull in resources. So they kind of secure their environment. And it's the same when I walk down a street. Well, I, kind of, they should. But it's the same when I walk down a street. I mean, there are houses that have got CCTV and alarms and, and things outside, and you know they're well protected. And then you get to a, a, maybe a smaller house or a house that it isn't had as much investment, and you can immediately see they're not as secure. Now, if you can get into that house and traverse, then you're in 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 trouble. But I mean, I can see you're gonna throw some grenades in here. A, a few shell bombs, yes. <laughs> um, there is a difference between perception and reality. Okay. Likewise, you have those big buildings with cameras. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, the other day, I was looking at um, an issue that happened in London, where uh, someone just drove a car uh, into a jewelry. Um, to bust it open and take out the jewelries from there. And we're talking about uh, pretty beefed up security jewelry, right? Yeah. And they still managed to get it, right? Um, you had RSA quite a few years ago that was breached uh, to remove the keys. Well, recently, uh, Microsoft, come on, if Microsoft cannot even secure their own keys, whoa, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. Uh, where where the Chinese get the keys from? That's a different story. What what was the means that they they used to get those keys? That's that's the the ten million dollar question, or maybe a bit more. Um, but still, the, the the perception and the reality are two different things. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's a it's a wide topic we could debate for ages. Um, one of the yeah. so there are two more things in this article. One of them says engaging the board, building trust and confidence. We've talked a little bit about that, and I think that's imperative. I think the board has to trust you and trust the role, but you have to trust them as well. I think it's a two-way thing with any form of trust. And the last thing is quick and continuous updates. I mean, for me, that's communication. And for me, communication is critical 
in cyber and IT, whatever role you're in. I mean, if you're doing things and not telling people, then I think that's imperative. John, John, what do you think about that? I mean, I know you communicated all the time in your previous role. I mean, it it, it comes down to if you're in a crisis, um, what is the way the board wants to be communicated? Um, because of the, the legislation now and the regulation changing is, is saying four days, you have to report within four days that's the SEC, that there's been a breach and uh, you have to report what kind of breach. So uh, that protocol to communicate what is a breach, how how significant is this cybersecurity event, um, that's a critical thing. And on top of that, it's, uh, again, how do you communicate with the board? Uh, what sort of data are you showing them? Um, what uh, what form do they want to consume it in? Uh, it, it's It's such a broad topic. I, I I mean, I find the fact that you have to tell somebody you've been breached within four days quite a difficult one because is it four days from when you found that you've been breached? You may have been breached like a year ago, six months ago. And I mean, I'm assuming it is. It's general generally it's when you when you've been when you've uncovered it. So you've created an inc incident and you you know, hey, they they dropped out this database that contains all these credit cards and so on and so forth. Um, that's that's when the clock starts. Yeah. Um, I think the challenge around that is is how do you bring together all the interests? Um, you know, legal has to get involved in it. PR has to get involved in it. Um, what is the risk to the business? Uh, it's, it's like any crisis. It's, you know, it's essentially, Hey, um, it, it's very similar to, Hey, our, our bank, uh, failed and, and we're out of money. What do we do now? It's, it's a crisis situation and, and bringing all those resources together and, and, uh, letting it, you know, out on the media and what's going to happen to the stock price. These are, these are all calculations you have to put into place. Uh, cause some people are saying, Hey, it, why is it four days? It should be 24 hours. Um, yeah, okay, I get it, but um, there's a lot of mechanisms in the background that have to come together. Yeah, I mean, four days is sounds like a, a relatively long time, but it's not. I mean, it's nope. certainly going to be one of those things that you need a plan, you need a playbook, you need to have run through the playbook, and you need to know who you're telling, what you're telling, how you're telling them, and all that. I mean, it's it's the same as any other form of disaster, like you, you've got to recover a, a, a down site or whatever it may be, or not just even in IT, but it's the same with any kind of disaster recovery policy or or which brings yeah. up a conversation we recently had with Lester Chung and you know the the uh, unpredictable elements of IT I mean all the technologies you have you can put them together in a predictable way you can fail them over so on and so forth but uh that human element that you don't know especially if you've had changes in leadership uh I think it'd be it's very important to run those uh scenarios yeah. And, um, you know, put people in a stressful situation and see how they react. Uh, because, again, that's the unpredictable element here. Yeah, I, I, I concur completely with John on this, Jay, to be honest. Uh, quite a few years ago, I've been an advocate that if there is something that companies, regardless or organizations in general, should always prepare for, is for the uh, event of an incident of um, this scale. So you need to prepare to have a data breach. You need to know exactly what to do. Uh, you need to know exactly what to communicate internally, what you need to communicate to your clients, to your partners, and to the public if that would be the case. Uh, we have seen in UK a few years ago a data breach in one of the major telecoms where um, the PR was so disastrous. It was actually, the PR was 
worse than the incident itself. The incident was not the, the best one, for sure, uh, but the PR which is completely catastrophic and the impact of the PR is still reminded today, uh, almost 10 years after, yeah. is one of the worst PR exercises. So if anything, make sure that, uh, as again, as John pointed out, your legal, uh, your teams internally, your PR, your marketing are well oiled. You have a script who exactly tells what to people in certain occasions internally, lockdown, Tell people that from this time on, you are not allowed to communicate anything related to this incident is absolutely mandatory. We've seen during incidents or incident investigation, people just providing random pieces of information out there that is very damaging to companies. But above all is one thing that I urge everyone to be is honest. Yeah. Do not try to cover up, okay? Trying to cover up will just make you a fool because as we say, the, the truth always comes to the surface. Uh, and if you're trying to cover up or um, trying to uh, golden um, the pill, it will not work well, I would say, in general, in general. I think that's a really good advice and, and a good way of rounding off this podcast. I think that's really good. So, I mean, I'd, I'd like to thank you for coming on. It's been great. I want to ask you a fun question and I'm going to ha uh, hand over to John and I'm not going to ask you should pineapple go on pizza because I know that John refrains or doesn't like me asking that. Um, but I'm going to ask about food. Um, food. Food's a very important part of my life. Um, I want to ask really what has been your best food experience and it doesn't necessarily have to mean that the food was fantastic. It could be that it was in a great location or you were with great people or family or friends or whatever it might be. Just the best food experience. Best food experience for me is always when you share food with friends. Uh, and if you're cooking food among friends, um, regardless how long they have been friends for, it can be new friends, old friends. For me, that's the best food experience is uh, when people cooking from the heart and willing to share uh, I'm, I'm blessed to have such a diverse um, group of people around me from different parts of the world. Um, but I always found that sharing food uh, with friends and people that you like is always the best experience. I think that's a really good answer. Thank you. So, John, over to you. Yeah. So preference, uh, what kind of food is it? I mean, there's there's lots of shareable foods. There's lots of foods that kind of show um, the family side. Um so if you're in that situation uh, and you're you're the one who's responsible for the cooking, what food is it? Ooh, tough question. I like to cook. Um, um, I really like to cook. Can be several things, but um, I would say most likely uh, would be something uh, slightly different. I like to mix sweet and and salty so it will be um, a roasted chicken mm. um, with po with pomegranate jam or with um, wild berry jam oh. solid choice i'm coming to your house for dinner <laughs> anytime buddy anytime. <laughs> it's been great having you on um i'd love to get you back on again at some point i think we've just kind of tip the top of some of the, the the topics we've discussed i mean we could go so much deeper on each topic but you've given some great insights. I've really enjoyed it. Um, anything from you, John, before we wrap? 
No, like, again, this is um, another conversation that I've really enjoyed. So, yeah, awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. And again, uh, whenever you guys want to have me, more than happy to, to join you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge. <laughs>